Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. COVID-19 numbers continue to rise across most of the country with many states and communities dealing with full hospitals and exhausted healthcare workers. Health officials continue to plead with the public to do their part to stop the spread of the virus by wearing a mask and practicing social distance. The latest COVID-19 surge is forcing hospitals to manage staff, supplies and resources to care for both COVID and non-COVID-19 patients. Joining us to discuss this today is Mayo Clinic's Division Chair of Infectious Diseases, Dr. Eli Babari. Welcome to the program, Dr. Babari. Dr. Babari, we're hearing a lot about community spread and community transmission. Can you explain to us what that actually means? It means that the, the, there's enough spread within the community. The, the issue is that it's just outside the walls of a healthcare setting like a hospital or a clinic. And the control over community spread is much more different than say a control within a hospital setting or a clinic setting. The ability to implement PPE protocols and ensure compliance is much more limited, say in a community, as opposed to a hospital setting or a more closed environment. Um, and, and that's really what that means is that uh, there's widespread transmission of cases outside the wall of healthcare settings um, in houses, in restaurants, in, in common venues around the country and cities. And so we hear the, the term uh, positivity rate. So can you explain what does that mean? Does that mean that the community is positive? Those people that are being tested are positive? Can you explain what that means and, and why is that an important number to track? What that means is the number of people who tested positive over the number of people who got tested. So if we test 100 individuals and 10 of them are positive on that test, that means the positivity rate is 10%. Why that is important? Because that's not affected in general by the number of tests that are performed. Uh, it's more of a reflection of how common COVID is. And a change in that number can be a leading indicator to hospitalizations or ICU stay and that has been proven in a number of studies. So that makes it a very important um, a metric to follow and a number to follow. So as you mentioned, you know, hospitals follow the positivity rate, even schools pos follow the positivity rates. Is there a number where you start seeing a rate whereby you start getting worried that this is getting to a level that we need to start putting stronger implementation measures into effect? Indeed. Um, so there are some thresholds that have been described uh, that that could uh, impact uh, policy and management. In general, anything above 5% is considered a sustained transmission and a high rate. And anything above 10% positivity rate indicates usually some uh, drastic actions are needed, such as you know, lockdowns or uh, you know, in, in terms of colleges or students going more to virtual learning and so forth. Um, and these are thresholds that have been established above which transmission can accelerate uh, and therefore are used commonly. So we're used to seeing surges in the East Coast and the West Coast, but now obviously it's coming or it's happening in the Midwest. Can you tell us about what the positivity rate is here and, and how you factor that in, in terms of managing space, supplies and hospital staff? If you look at neighboring states and some of the Midwestern states, we've ranged in positivity rate between 10, 15% to up to 30% in some instances. These are considered high rates of positivity, uh, the like of which lockdowns or social distancing and some drastic measures are needed 
to slow down the transmission. Any individual that's positive today, uh, there's about seven or 10% risk that that individuals will need hospitalization and a portion of those will need subsequent care in an intensive care unit. So that positivity rate and the number of people who are coming down with COVID can be a leading indicator on utilizations and space and hospitals and healthcare setting. And many institutions like ours use that as one of the metrics to advise on policies regarding slowing down elective practices uh, or outpatient practices and so forth. We hear that there's a treatment for COVID-19. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? And if you, if you are eligible for treatment, is that an inpatient or an outpatient setting? You know, maybe the most remarkable thing about COVID is how quickly uh, science and scientists uh, were able to respond and develop effective management strategies, considering that um, less than a year ago, we didn't know that this virus existed and we didn't even know that this disease existed. We went from bad zero knowledge to having effective therapeutics tested in large scale clinical trials and clinical studies. Currently in the United States, uh, there are three common therapies that are used. Uh, one is called remdesivir. This is a medicine that attacks the virus directly. The steroids uh, commonly used is one called dexamethasone. This has been studied in large scales. And the goal of this medicine is to dampen the immune response to the virus, preventing major effects on organs in the lung in particular. And the last one is a, is a serum convalescent plasma. This is antibodies that are directed against the virus that prevents the virus uh, from progressing and causing damage and so forth. Those three treatments are used together now or sometimes sequentially in most patients who are hospitalized. There is a, a recent uh, product uh, that is also in the families of antibodies or monoclonal antibodies that is administered early to individuals who might be at higher risk of needing hospitalizations. And we hope that this medicine will reduce the chance of um, uh, progressing to needing hospitalizations or even intensive care unit. That drug is currently being deployed as we speak and is becoming increasingly available to individuals and patients who might be at risk for hospitalization. So you mentioned um, there's a critical window to give that uh, drug. Do you know uh, what that is? Yeah, so you really wanna give that drug early uh, so you could prevent that complications. It typically takes seven or 10 days, um, you know, from getting the, uh, starting with the symptoms to becoming ill, needing hospitalization. There's always that lag. So the earlier you can get that medicine, the better it is within 10 days or so of the symptoms onset is what we would recommend. Most that individuals who do get, who get COVID get a mild disease and will never need hospitalizations. But the older a patient is, or if you have comorbid conditions such as diabetes, high BMI, obesity, cardiac, lung disease, and kidney disease, then the risk of hospitalization goes up. Now, you mentioned about those patients who contract COVID-19. Are they immune uh, from catching it again? And if so, how long are they immune for? If there was no immunity, the vaccine would not work. We do know now from the two vaccines 
that uh, phase three data and efficacy data has been released, they are highly efficacious in preventing COVID. Um, 90 to 95% effectiveness for the first two uh, vaccines where data is available in large scale clinical trials. So developing an infection will confer immunity. It's unclear how long that community, that immunity would last, uh, likely six months, but possibly one or two years. We haven't had that disease for more than a year, so we have no way of knowing if an individual who got infected this season will be immune from acquiring a virus, say, nine months or a year from now. We also know that there are cases where there have been documented reinfection after exposure. These are well-documented cases with studying the type of virus initially that they were infected with and the one that they got reinfected with that makes this certainly a possibility. As you mentioned, it's amazing to see how the scientific community has come together. And as you said, we've heard about two vaccines, but every day the news is changing. How should people process that information when they hear about the vaccines and their efficacy? COVID has taught us uh, is how we could accelerate the development of science, but also the challenge is how do you gain acceptance, um, you know, for novel therapy and how to really understand the safety around these medicines, because that's really very important, knowing that the disease, for the most part, is, is not going to lead to hospitalization or serious complications. So understanding the safety profile of, say, vaccine is a crucial crucial component of, of acceptance on a wider scale and also for organizations to support it. So that's being, uh, there's a lot of attention that's being paid around the safety and the safety of vaccines. Uh, the companies will release their safety data. There's gonna be independent safety boards and scientists that will review those data in, in much of detail to make sure that the vaccine is safe to administer on such a large scale. Now, as you know, we're heading into the holidays and the winter season. Many people have COVID fatigue. And so what is your message to them as they think about celebrating with family, getting together, trying to have some form of fun in obviously what's been a stressful year? It has been definitely a stressful, stressful year. And we've seen that in, in the rate of depression and anxiety uh, and some of the calls related to suicide and so forth. Uh, in some instances, it's double or triple or quadruple the pre-COVID era. So this is re a real phenomena um, that, that is facing our nation and the world, pounded by the quarantine and the social isolation and the fear around uh, getting sick. All these are uh, leading to these uh, increased rates of, of uh, issues related to mental health. Um, in terms of what, what to do around the holiday season, I would advise all individuals who are on your listeners to go to your Department of Health website There's and the CDC. There's ample guidance on what to do from physical distancing, social distancing, the number of people who are in the house, um, all these things. So, of course, the most drastic measure is not to have a, not to have a family gathering or, or a gathering of friends and loved ones. Option two, if you were to have one, have limited numbers, depends by state and varies, and also structure your house around distancing so people are not close to each other. Also, one consideration is to use testing. There is now wide-scale testing that's available 
either through states or through retail stores that are rapid or turnaround or at-home collections that can be used to further reduce and mitigate that risk. Taken all together, we can make a difference. You could also opt for a Zoom meeting or a Zoom call with family and friends. That's, that's not the same, but it's an alternative and some families and loved ones are opting for that choice. Now you mentioned about stress in the community, but let's not forget our healthcare workers who are especially stressed and fatigued. You're doing a lot of tremendous work behind the scenes. How are you and your colleagues holding up with all of this going on? This has stressed the healthcare system. Our colleagues and healthcare workers are working overtime and overdrive. It's like running a race at 100%. You cannot run a marathon at 100%. And in some ways, that's how it feels. Um, we have to slow down. Resiliency is a very important factor in being successful in terms of pandemic or in this in terms of this major crisis. Um, and think about ourselves and our health and our mental health. So slowing down, taking some time off, supporting each other, and knowing that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, we, we talked about going from a disease that was a pandemic, that was declared a pandemic in March of this year, to having multiple effective vaccine, two with uh, phase three trials almost near completions, uh, three drugs with uh, significant effectiveness and more to come, all in the span of a few months. Uh, we need to celebrate those achievements and celebrate the science. We also need to understand that COVID is a catalyst for the society and the healthcare system. It has spurred tons of innovation uh, in terms of advancing the care of patients and non-COVID patients. And we have to understand that and use the technologies, the artificial intelligence, the analytics, the acceleration of research, all these tools that we've learned how to accelerate and develop into non-COVID care once COVID is over or under control. Uh, and I think these are to be celebrated. But, uh, you know, of course, we, we are facing a tremendous challenge, um, but we're making significant progress. And I think we are seeing a little bit of light here towards the end. Our thanks to Dr. Eli Babari, Division Chair of Infectious Diseases at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for joining us today. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well.